Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome to one of our first Christmas episodes of the season. Ooh, my Christmas sound. <laughs> Ooh, like a ghost. Yeah, the ghost the of ghost Christmas past. Muppets. <laughs> we forgot about our Muppets for a while. Oh, uh, and Furbies. We, it has been a minute since we've talked about Furbies. Mm-hmm. I see your Furby eyes. You see, I'm looking at you. There is a Facebook yeah. page called Furby of the Day. I don't even need to say anything else. It's just perfection. Yeah. On it. Liked. Definitely. Well, we thought it would be fun to tell you some Christmas tales of murder. Yeah. That's, that's what we do around here sometimes. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. So we selected a couple we found interesting. And I actually, I've researched Christmas true crime before, but I had never actually researched all these ones that that we talked about tonight. So... Unfortunately, there's no shortage of Christmas true crime. Yeah, I was surprised, but I guess I shouldn't be because whenever you have a lot of people gathering, they're going to murder each other. You know, we're going to talk about this more next week, but I feel like if we had more vague mystical threats, we wouldn't have as much Christmas true crime. Mm-hmm. They need birch to- mm-hmm. and a Yule cat and a Yule cat. We could change the world. We could when perched on a perch. <laughs> Anyways, we thought, yeah, we'd share some interesting tales with you. So the first one we're going to talk about is the murder of Michelle Dowd. Now, she lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and in 2011, she was murdered. She was 67 at the time, and she was found by her twin brother, Phil Axt, and he went to check on her because she didn't show up to work. And when he got there, he found her tucked beneath the Christmas gifts in her own house. Oh, wow. That's horrible. That's particularly bad and gruesome. And when I was first researching it, I was like, oh, that was a stranger, right? Because it seems like you're trying to hide it, Mm -hmm. but also kind of like a little bit tongue in cheek, which is gross. It's just like a gross way to do that because it wasn't as though like some people have decorative gifts that are just boxes that are wrapped beautifully that sit beneath a tree. It's weird, but people do it. But these were gifts for like her nieces and nephews and relatives. So like, oh, yeah. But so the house was also ransacked, but her car and dog were still home. Her dog was okay. I didn't see anything to say otherwise. So I'm going to assume they were fine because I also don't think that it had been long. Okay. So her brother, he could see her because her foot was sticking out beneath the presence. Oh, no. Yeah. And so once he like inspected more, he saw that like her face was covered with a towel and that there was an empty bottle of vodka staged nearby. And folks originally thought that that was used to kind of cover up the crime scene or make it look like something stranger happened than actually did. Fortunately, the case was solved pretty quickly. There was a woman named Patty Michelle White, who was a family friend, and she had originally dated Michelle Dowd's nephew, I believe. But so she had gotten a little bit close with Michelle Dowd. And so Patty had come to Florida basically to rob Michelle. Like That was her whole reason to be there. And they had had a pretty close relationship before that. Michelle would pay Patty to do odd jobs around the house or like go do errands for her because Patty had a hard time holding down a job and she wanted to help her earn money. OK. 
And then at one point, Patty didn't have any place to stay and Michelle let her live with her for a month. And she even trusted her to go get groceries for the two of them and gave her the pin to her debit card. So some trust, some serious trust was given there. So after Patty murdered Michelle, she went to two separate ATMs and withdrew a total of $1,000 because she had the pin. Oh, yeah. They'd never know it was her. That's why they were able to catch her so quickly because the cameras were like, yeah, it is you. And so she had tried to disguise herself, but did a bad job. She went back to South Carolina, which was where she had been living, and she was extradited to Florida. And she pled guilty to murder and she was sentenced to 45 years in prison in 2013. So fortunately, it was a pretty quick case because it was clear who had done it and why. Yeah. It's sad because she murdered someone who had been selflessly kind for an amount of money that wasn't even that much. Yeah. And just how dumb, you know, to take the card and then just walk right up to the ATM. Mm -hmm. There was no thought put into this at all. Yeah. I wonder what sparked it like on that particular night and why it was so poorly done. From what I had read, it looked like there had been a struggle that and perhaps Patty didn't expect Michelle to be awake or she didn't expect that she would have like put up a fight for it. Okay, so she like snuck in maybe just to steal the card and then. Yeah, I don't think she planned on murdering Michelle. I don't think she would have had a reason to because like she had what she needed to be able to get the money. Mm -hmm. She already had the pin. I don't think she changed it after Patty had moved out. Yeah, that makes it so much worse. Yeah. You know that it wasn't even a planned thing. It was just things happened in a certain way that's just very unfortunate. Yeah. We don't only host a podcast, we also love listening to podcasts. Here's another podcast we think you might like. Hello and welcome to What Goes Bump in the Night. I'm your host, Trevor Jensen, and with me is... Riley Clark. And on this podcast, we explore everything spooky, extraterrestrial, unexplained, and supernatural. Bringing you our own personal experiences, experiences from our guests, creepy, creepy stories. So join us around the campfire, or for just a Riley and Trev talk where we talk about any topic that we feel is relevant to anything that day. And you could also just come for these creepy pastas that we find on these forums. So join us around the campfire and find out who really goes bump in the night. So another very interesting Christmas time murder was between some Costco employees and it happened on Christmas Eve. Woof. I do love Costco though. Yeah. That's why it stuck out to me because of everyone's love for Costco. And it's just so tragic and didn't have to happen. It was just someone being really stupid. So the woman who unfortunately got murdered, her name was Samina Imam, and she was 34 years old, and she was the regional marketing manager of a Costco. Samina and Roger worked there together in Coventry, which is in the UK, and relationships between senior managers and staff were a big no-no there, just like most companies, right? Yeah. So Roger was 41 at the time, and his name is Roger Cooper. He was a manager at one of the Costco's and they were about two years into their secret relationship. So on the second year of their relationship, Samina gave Roger an ultimatum and said, leave your long term girlfriend or it's over between us. And Roger agreed. I feel like that feels pretty fair. Yeah. And there's rumors that he had three different women at the same time, like he was dating or had relationships with three different women. 
One was like the live-in girlfriend. One was, you know, the girl at work. And then there's rumored to be a third somewhere. What I don't understand is that I'm not saying that polyamory is like widely accepted by a lot of people in America, but it's, it's becoming less and less taboo where people are having open relationships. And so one, the secrecy isn't necessary, but two, like if that's the dynamic he was looking for, he could have had that with consensual partners. Like he didn't have to lie to like all of these women. Right. Exactly. So the last character in this tragedy is David Cooper, who is Roger's brother, who's 39 years old, and he's an ex-soldier. Okay, so just to make sure that I'm following all your people, we've got Samina, secret girlfriend from work, Roger, secret boyfriend from work, and then Roger's brother, David. Yes. Now, here's what happened. So she gave him that ultimatum, right? He agreed with her. However, he did not want to lose his long-term girlfriend, the live-in girlfriend. And he also didn't want to lose his job because that was a big no-no. So he decided instead of just facing the mess that he made, he decided to murder Samina with the help of his brother. That feels like it's so much more difficult. It does. It does. Look for another job. You're cheating on your girlfriend. Like, no. Two years living with her. That's not okay. It's not okay. I wonder what kind of gaslighting was happening in that home because like I f- I would like to think that if my husband had like someone on the side, I would be able to tell. Yeah. So, the first attempt happened on December 12th of 2014, and Roger told Samina to meet him at a hotel that they frequently visited, and she was going to visit after a Christmas party, and she planned on staying the night at the hotel. So, he booked the room I believe it was almost like a surprise to her, probably because he normally didn't stay, would be my guess. And the plan was to have David waiting in the car to essentially abduct her. And the thing that caught a lot of people's attention about this case is the way that the brothers communicated with one another. So during this particular evening, they used Star Wars nonsense to communicate. And so they'd say things like Death Star complete or stay on target, stay on target. You're expected Vader. Look, here's the thing. I am nerdy and I love Star Wars, but no, this is like a different level of like, like cringe. Yeah, it is. It's terrible. It doesn't even make sense. So the plan clearly failed because these two are morons. And from what I understand, she like took a cab to the hotel and she was able to like get out safely and get into the hotel. But like the news articles and things like that did not reflect every little instance. I started watching some of like the interviews with them later on and they're all over the place. Let's just say that. So anyways, yeah, she gets to the hotel safely. So then David sends a text to Roger in broken French And it's translated, there is no point, no score. The window is closed. So basically, he was not able to abduct her. They aren't even good at this. No, they're terrible. They're, yeah, they're morons. Star Wars is popular. French is a well-known language. These are all things that are decipherable. Just, you might as well just be like, I can't get her. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because no one talks like that. Could you imagine their phones, right? And they're like normal brother speak. Like, what are you doing today? Do you have work today? Whatever. And then it's death start complete. What? You guys can't see me, but I'm shaking my head. Yeah, it's going to get more attention that way. So anyways, let's fast forward to Christmas Eve 2014. So the couple, Roger and Samina, had plans to spend Christmas Day at a hotel in Birmingham. And essentially, it was going to be like the start of their real relationship. They could finally be together officially. At 4 p.m., Smina left work right after Roger, and they drove separate cars. She drove a BMW, 
and Roger was driving an Audi. After leaving, they both met up and she got into his car. She left her car on like a a safe street. So once in his car, they drove off towards Lester. And what she thought it was is they were going on like a quick pre-Christmas visit to go visit David. And it was just going to be like a, a little detour to their Birmingham trip. And during this, like on the way there, she actually talked with her sister. And while on the phone, she was confirming that she would be at her parents' home on Boxing Day. She would be there for like the family celebration, right? Yeah. So they arrive at David Cooper's house around 5 p.m. Since it was winter, it was already dark. She was pretty quickly attacked when she entered David's home. And it sounds like she couldn't find where Roger was after listening to like the interviews. It sounds like she couldn't understand where Roger went or if he left or left her there. I can't find the entire interview published anywhere, but it sounds like she was just kind of upset that she couldn't find him yeah. and was talking to David. And then David like overpowered her. So it was fairly easy to do because she was 5'2". And the brothers were both 6'5 and 6'7. So they were giants. Those are tall gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. So he smothered her with chloroform that he had purchased from eBay a few weeks beforehand, which in one of the interviews, he's like, I collect weird things that you guys might find odd, but I just collect weird things. And there's a difference between like collecting weird things and buying chloroform. Yeah. Prepping for murder. Like those are different. And then there's also at some point, and I can't find the specifics on this, and it could just be maybe the UK doesn't put a lot of it out like we do. Yeah. But they believed that they administered a weird combination of metallic elements to her in liquid form as well. But it was ultimately the chloroform that got her. They weren't even good at this. Yeah. So she she died. By 625, Roger had already begun driving back to Coventry, and he left David to take care of the rest. (laughs) Lazy. Right? Lazy. So I think he had to get home to his girlfriend, though. Because remember, he said, yeah, we're going to start our relationship. We're going to be together forever. Blink, blink. I'm going to leave her. He he didn't plan on doing that. So to create the impression that she was still alive, Roger sent a text to himself from her phone. And it said, I am fuming. I am going to where I'm truly cared for. So like they were in a fight. That gave him time to say, yeah, she was mad at me, you know, yeah, wasn't talking to me. So he, yeah, he planned on going home to his long-term girlfriend. And the weird thing is, like, that no one understands your cell phone pings off of towers, right? So, like, when you're texting yourself from a phone that you're also holding, the ping is going to be like you're in the same car. You know, it's just so dumb. That's also how they found out where, like, Lori Vallow's kids were, is they based it off of cell phone pings, right? Yeah. It solves cases, a lot of the time. So don't be stupid. Also, don't murder people. Yeah, don't murder people. But like the stupidity of it. So David began disposing of her body. And pathologists say that she was transferred to the grave within a few hours of her death. So it's not like he waited around. She was wrapped in cling film and then into a sleeping bag. And he buried the body on a quiet allotment. And I was like, what is an allotment? Because <laughs> that's not a word that we use really, right? Yeah. And everything I see is like a garden area or like a shed and garden area. Oh. Yeah. Some say a community garden, but I highly doubt it was a community garden in this case. And speaking of sheds, there was a shed nearby. Guess what the sign on the shed said? Don't wind me up. I'm running out of places to hide the bodies. Blink, blink. There are pictures of the sign all over these newspaper articles. I'm going to I'm just going to say this doesn't sound like their first murder, right? 
Like they're not they're not good at it, but the skill it would take to wrap a human body in saran wrap is something that you do not just know how to do. No. I can barely wrap like a muffin in saran wrap. So like, yeah, a full human body by myself? No. No. No, no, no. But yeah, they're so dumb that it's like, I don't know how they would have gotten away with anything else. And I didn't see any additional charges, you know, like, oh, and we found this murdered body. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He sounded like a weirdo. Like he sounds the interviews. I'll go into some of the interviews, but he's just a very, very strange man. So over the next couple of days, they then went and they moved her car and they wiped it for DNA and fingerprints and then they abandoned it somewhere else. So time goes by. She never makes it to Boxing Day dinner. And so the police were brought in. They launched a search. And I saw in some articles they codenamed it for some reason. And it was called Operation Ceramic. Ceramic? Yeah. No idea. These guys really have the vibe that they're each other's only friends. The fact that this guy got two girlfriends is surprising. I don't care what he looks like. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Possibly three. (laughs) Jesus. So there is an interview from January 2nd, 2015. So remember, this happened Christmas Eve is when they killed her, January 2nd. And it's an interview with Roger. And he says the last time that he saw Samina was when he was leaving work. And during the interview, he sounds really upset. Like he keeps sniffling and like wiping his face. And then he says that she called him five minutes later and they had like a two minute conversation where she was like, see you tonight. And he said no. And that she sounded like disappointed, but in her head thought they were actually still going to meet up. And then he says later on, I received that text where she says like, I'm going where I'm truly cared for. So that was his way of like covering his tracks. There's also an interview with David, but on this interview, you don't get to, I think they zoomed in to where you can't see the date. So I'm not quite sure when this one was taken, but he was brought in and he was told he's being interviewed about a missing person. Oh. And he acts like he doesn't even know her. He's like, oh yeah, I've met her twice, but it was brief and like, I didn't even know her name. I know she worked with my brother. And the whole time he's super like fidgety, but he seemed fairly calm for like, someone who's being questioned by police in regards to a missing person. Yeah. So on January 4th, her car was found and it was about 65 miles from Coventry. Her purse was missing along with her suitcase and items that she had shopped for the day that she went missing. Remember, she thought she was going to go be with her boyfriend and it was going to be official. So she had bought things like a bottle of Bellini and some snacks and things like that, right? Mm. There were no fingerprints and police are like, this is suspicious. Yeah. You know, there should at least be her fingerprints, right? Yeah. The front seat was also pushed back really far for her to be driving. Again, those giant morons. <laughs> oh, yeah. Six, seven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it became, instead of like a missing person, it became more of like a murder search, you know, like our inquiry. So police started to put together what happened. Data from the phone showed that she traveled with Roger to Lester. And the bottle of Bellini was in David's fridge, along with the snacks she had purchased. Oh, my God. David, get your shit together. Yeah. Yeah. So he messed up. The brothers were arrested on suspicion of murder on January 7th and charged two days later. Someone also tipped the police off about the allotment. I don't know who. I could not find any other information on why they'd even bring it up unless it was like, I noticed there was some fresh dirt, you know, something. But a week after their arrest, her body was found. And as they were searching, they discovered like the outside edge of the sleeping bag. Hmm. 
There is an interview of David post-charge, right? So after he's been charged. And he explains that she died on the sofa and that she was talking about how she was looking for his brother and he was just trying to buy him time. So it sounds like Roger might have been wanting to leave her there or, you know, go home to his live-in girlfriend. And she was just like really upset, not knowing where he went, what was going on. And he wanted to buy him time because she didn't know where he actually lived. What? So he got the chloroform and he just wanted to make her unconscious for a little bit. But oops, she died. As he's telling the story, and again, it's not the full interview, it's like pieces of it. He refers to her body as it. He says, I put it in my sleeping bag. And it just like made me so upset. He's a real weirdo. Yeah, no, that's very, very strange. This also like Mm -hmm. reeks of like, I saw this in a movie, right? Like, yeah, like, well, and also say he was just trying to buy his brother time to like get there or whatever. Let me just chloroform your side chick so she chills for a bit yeah like that's not normal behavior well when you think of like in the movies right you put a little bit of chloroform on a rag and then they just pass out for a little bit it sounded like he just thought that's how things worked yeah it genuinely like when he's talking about it it did almost seem like not that i don't think that they meant to murder her i think that there was maybe a plan but i don't think that they meant to murder her in that fashion is just my speculation but he did seem a little surprised. He's like, oh, yeah. And then she died. <laughs> like, it was too much chloroform. I don't know. And he like, yeah, he describes like where the kitchen or like where he kept the chloroform versus like where she was on the sofa. And it was pretty close together. But real weirdo. I know I could keep my chloroform close to the couch. So pretty typical. Yeah. Yeah. So on October 21st, 2015, the jury found Roger and David both guilty of murder. Surprise, surprise. And they were given a 30 year sentence. It doesn't feel like enough. No, but when you look at like our system versus others, it is very different. Do they have the death penalty there? Do you know? In 1965, the death penalty for murder was banned in England, Scotland, and Wales. I don't disagree with that. I don't think one murder solves anything. (laughs) No. So pretty gruesome. We have Costco. We have Star Wars. These, yeah, two idiots definitely made some bad choices. It's a real bumbling kind of murder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're going to murder me, at least be good at it, please. Right. That That's a good yeah way to describe it. It was just, oh, I saw this in a movie once. It should work. So the next case, I'm not going to tell you what it's commonly called because that'll give some things away. I had never heard of this case before, so I thought it was very interesting and I was very surprised at a kind of how this played out. So in the spring of 2008, Sylvia Pardo and her children moved out of their family home, which they shared with the children's father and Sylvia's husband at the time, Bruce Pardo. The contentious divorce of Sylvia and Bruce Pardo was finalized that following December on the 18th. A few days after that, Bruce volunteered to serve as an usher at midnight mass at the church that they typically attended, which he did every year. It wasn't very surprising that he did that. Mm-hmm. Now, also every year, Joseph and Alice Ortega hosted a Christmas party at their home for about two dozen of their friends and family. The Ortega family had lived in the same neighborhood for years, and it was kind of sweet because their neighbors like knew of the party and were always kind of like like they they didn't all attend it, but they loved how close the Ortegas were with their family. Yeah, some had some people who were interviewed had even been like, "I wished our family was close like that," which I thought was kind of sweet. So it was like closeness everybody wants or family. Yeah, yeah. And one of their neighbors even dressed as Santa every year for the kids. 
That's adorable. Isn't it? Like, and so, but this particular year, he wasn't able to attend. And I don't know whether they told the kids that or not, honestly, but tuck that away. So Bruce Pardo left his home dressed as he usually did. And one of his neighbors was like, kind of shooting the breeze with him, was like, where are you headed? Because it was between 9 and 10 p.m. Okay. He's like, oh, I'm headed to a party. And neighbor's like, okay, toodaloo. Around 11.30, the doorbell rings at the Ortega house. And Katrina, the eight-year-old granddaughter of Joseph and Alice, opens the door. When she opens the door, she sees Bruce Pardo standing there dressed as Santa Claus. And he has a, a big wrapped package. Yeah, so that was normal for her, right? Because every year Santa Claus came. Yeah, it was normal for her. Yeah, it's Santa. And like, she's eight, so she's not thinking like... For the children listening, this isn't surprising that Santa's dressed and here. Yeah. But also, who's letting their eight-year-old open the door? No, thank you. I think it, I don't think that it was like a I let you thing. It's kind of like there's a party. She happened to be like walking by. And also like it's family friends. They know the neighborhood and they're their grandparents' house. So like kids are like, I do what I want. Yeah. So Bruce enters the Ortega home and starts shooting a nine millimeter handgun. Oh my gosh. He shoots Katrina in the face. She lives, though. So let's start there. Okay. She ends up fleeing the house with her mother, Letitia, who is the youngest of Joseph and Alice's children. From there, other party goers attempt to flee. A 16-year-old girl was shot in the back. A one woman jumps from a second-story window, and she breaks either her leg or her ankle. I, I see different accounts of which she had broken. Oh, my gosh. Imagine how scary that is. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it gets so much worse. So... Some ran to Tom Minter's house, who was one of the Ortega's neighbors. And so Tom Minter is this 79-year-old man who's just like scrub-a-dub-a-dub in some dishes. And he hears a loud bang. Then SWAT enters his house and ushers in three of the partygoers. It was two women and a man. The, and they're sobbing. They're freaking out. Okay. And Minter overhears the guy who had fled say, oh, because he's on his cell phone. And he hears the guy say, they're dead. He shot them all. Oh, no. Yeah. How absolutely frightening would that be? Like finding your own business in your home and then, oh, everyone's dead. Uh, yeah, I know. I would. I don't know how I would handle that. But so like SWAT has them turn off all the lights and they're like getting low because there's clearly like a gunman in the neighborhood. So Pardo runs out of bullets. That's when he pulls what was in the wrapped package out. And it's a homemade flamethrower. What the hell? Yeah. Yeah. We'll post pictures of it on our Instagram. It's fascinating. Like it's strange. So he begins to douse the house in approximately 18 gallons of gasoline. Now, when he had planned this out, he didn't assume there would be open flames, which is silly because a lot of times when people have parties, they have candles going, especially around Christmas time. It's like a vibe. Yeah. And so he didn't realize there would be open flames. So he didn't realize that the gasoline wouldn't ignite immediately. Gosh, dumb killers, right? While he's still there, right? Yeah. So around this time, 911 begins to get numerous calls. Like this is like before the sh around the shooting, before the gas, kind of like it's all jumbling into like one scene. Mm -hmm. So 911 is getting calls about fire and gunshots. One person said, come immediately. They're burning down someone's house. One neighbor said they saw a car leaving around 11.45 p.m. And another noted that the assailant was dressed like Santa and had been shooting. So runs out of bullets because he fires his gun so many times, douses the house in 18 gallons of gasoline, and then he leaves the scene. He drives 40 miles to his brother's house. He gets 40 miles away? Yeah. And he goes to his, he just goes to his brother's house. And so when police get on the scene, they describe it as apocalyptic. And the fire was raging, but police weren't sure if the gunman was still on the scene. So they wouldn't let firefighters get too close to the home. So they weren't, they were able to like kind of keep it at bay, but not 
really quell it. So it took 80 firefighters an hour and a half to put out the fire. Oh, my gosh. For a house fire, that's insane. Yeah. The arson team said they had never seen anything like it. And the fire was so bad that the second story of the house collapsed onto itself. Now, the next morning in Simlar, California, Brad Pardo returns to his home and he finds his brother dead. And they don't live together, mind you. So, like, Bruce went to Brad's house to kill himself. And so he sees him with a gunshot wound, calls the police. The police originally think that Bruce wasn't, didn't shoot himself because there's a second gunshot in the ceiling. So they think that there was a shooter. They also haven't connected him to the Ortegas yet because Sylvia's maiden name was Ortega. So, like, it took them a moment to, like, put the pieces together. Mm -hmm. So when they're doing his autopsy, that's when they realize that it was suicide. In addition to the shot in the ceiling, they also assume that he wouldn't have killed himself without a note. So during the autopsy, they realize that he had shot himself. Also in the autopsy, they see that he had, quote, horrific third degree burns on his hands and arms. Oh, no. The Santa suit he had been wearing melted onto his body. Oh, no. Yeah, because he didn't realize there was going to be open flames. So when the fire started, it probably started with a fiercely. And so he got burned as well. Right, right. So there's that. <laughs> so police then begin to realize like, oh, wait, he is part of the Covina massacre, which is what folks call it, because they realize that his ex-wife, her maiden name was Ortega. Mm -hmm. So when police are interviewing the only surviving child, Letitia, which we talked about earlier, she says that it was it was her ex-brother-in-law, Bruce Pardo, dressed in a Santa costume. Originally, it was difficult to find the bodies of the folks who had died inside the home because the house was so badly damaged, right? And there was so much burnt and they were burnt beyond recognition. They had to use cadaver dogs to find the bodies. That's horrible because, I mean, it's just a standard house, I, I would think. Yeah. And having to use that much, you know, that much firefighters and then cadaver dogs just to find bodies in such a small space is just. That's horrible. Yeah. And I mean, also the idea of losing your entire family in such a gruesome way is just, it's heartbreaking. The autopsy showed that each of the bodies had been shot at least once with the handgun. So police then searched the rental car that Pardo had driven to the Ortega home, which was at his brother's house. And they found a suspicious object. So they called in the bomb squad. When the bomb squad was trying to render it safe, it exploded and destroyed the car. <gasps> yeah. Oh my gosh. He liked fire. What was he trying? You know, like... Guns and then flamethrower and then bomb. Like, what did he plan on doing? What else could you do to that house? I don't even know. So also around this time, a strange car had been reported as being parked in front of a home in Pasadena, California. So when police go to investigate, they realize that it's a rental car that has also been rented to Bruce Pardo. So it seemed like he had multiple rental cars out. Yeah. Inside the car, they found a computer, clothes, water, food maps of the United States and Mexico. It was also 500 feet from Sylvia's divorce attorney's home. Oh, no. Yeah. So he had more plans. Yeah. I wonder what rendered his plans. Like, why didn't he go through with the rest? Oh, we'll get to it. So the car had been booby-trapped to blow up when Bruce Pardo took his the Santa suit off. Mm, and it was attached to his body. Mm-hmm. And there were also thousands of rounds of ammunition. So I'm thinking that he thought that when that car blew up, the ammunition would kind of like worsen the explosion because it would also come out. So when they were searching the Pardo home where Bruce 
had lived then by himself because his family had moved out. Police evacuated the neighboring homes because they thought it also may have been rigged. That's terrifying. On his body, police found seventeen thousand dollars. I don't I don't know where he was keeping that in the Santa suit and a ticket to Canada. Police speculated that he had planned on driving to the attorney's house after the murder of everyone at the Otega's home, but he had changed his plans once he had all of the burns because the burns were like all over his legs and hands and stuff. I would imagine that he couldn't focus on much else with fabric melted into his legs. Yeah, absolutely. He deserves that. Yeah. Oh, no, he absolutely deserved it. I I thought it was an like just as like if you didn't think he was a jerk already, which clearly he was like the worst. The fact that he went to his brother's house to kill himself. Like, why? Why do you have to do that? Why do you have to make him find you? Yeah. Why did you make him deal with that? Yeah. What an awful story. That's so sad. Yeah. It was especially sad. Disgusting that he wore a Santa costume. Disgusting that he brought in the flamethrower in a wrap package. Yeah. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of stories of where someone dresses as Santa and does horrendous things. And it's just, it's not okay. And like, don't get us wrong. We like some Christmas monsters, but we prefer those monsters to be actual monsters and not humans who are acting monstrous. Agreed. So speaking of when people dress as Santa and do horrendous things, there's a time where Santa robbed a bank. <laughs> He's got to pay them elves. All right. So this happened on December 23rd, 1927, and it was one of Texas's most infamous crimes. So it began December 22nd, 1927, when a group of people decided to plan a robbery. They met in Wichita Falls. So I'm going to go through the cast of robbers first. The first one was Marshall Ratliff. He was around 26 years old and he was an ex-con. Him and his brother, his name was Lee, had robbed a bank before in Valera. They served only a year of their sentence after being pardoned by the governor. Lee was supposed to go on this robbery too, but he had already been arrested again, so he could not join his brother. He's busy. Yeah. So since his brother couldn't help, Marshall Ratliff got the help of Robert Hill and Henry Helms to help him. He knew them from Huntsville. He also enlisted the help of a guy who was good with safes. But on the particular day that they wanted to meet up, he got the flu. So he had to ask someone else to step in. Typical. Who ended up being Louise Davis. Yeah. (laughs) So Robert Hill was around 21 years old and he was an ex-con as well. Henry Helms was a bit older. He was around 31 and he also had a wife and children. He too was an ex-con. And then the oddball of the group was Louise Davis. He was a relative of Helms and he pretty much was just a family man in need and they had offered him money. So he's, he's the one that does not belong in this group. So once they had their plan, they stole a car in Wichita Falls and headed for Cisco. They arrived the morning of December 23rd. Bank robbery was not very uncommon in this time period. About two to four Texas banks were being robbed each day. So just to paint a picture of how chaotic this was. It blows my mind that there really was a period of time when bank robbery was like super casual and let it happen all the time. Now there's so many safeguards, but I'm assuming they exist because of this time. But yes, it's interesting that people were like, we were bank robbers. And now I'm like, that's just a stupid thing because you get caught so quickly. Right, right. Well, I'm glad you brought up safeguard because one thing that they thought would help is the Texas Banker Association had offered a $5,000 reward to anyone shooting a bank robber during a crime. (laughs) Okay. Oh, Texas. That's the most Texas thing I've ever heard. Right? Exactly. I was just like, okay. 
This is where all of it comes from, Texas. Like, yeah, things are happening. Go shoot people. As you do. As you do. So this stupid reward is partially the reason this particular crime got so out of hand. So as they headed to First National Bank, Ratliff changed into a Santa outfit. He had borrowed it from, I only bring her name up because I know you'll like it. Her name was Midge. You love a midge, yeah. (laughs) A woman who ran the boarding house where they had been staying in Wichita Falls. So he borrowed a Santa suit, thought it would be a great idea to put it on. They let Santa out of the car a few blocks away from the bank. And as he walked up to the bank, children were pretty excited to see him, right? Santa. How about it? Yeah. So all these kids are like following him and trying to talk to him. So imagine like he's a bank robber. He's like, I'm going to go steal money. And then like all these children are like, hey, Santa. Bug off, kids. That's what was going on on his way, yeah, to the bank. And he decided that he needed to wear a disguise because he was known by the townspeople there and he wanted to hide his identity. So he's like, oh, Santa. But like, he didn't really think it through because Santa, a few days before Christmas, you're going to get a lot of attention. Yeah, people are pumped. So the robbers met in the alleyway and then headed into the bank. However, what they didn't notice is as Santa was walking to the bank, a little girl and her mom noticed him, you know, walking. And the little girl, whose name was Frances, told her mom, whose name was, again, just for you, her name, Mrs. P.B. Blassengame. Blassengame. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. You like a good name. I do love a good name. So she told her mom that she really wanted to talk to Santa. So they decided to like cross the street and follow him into the bank. Right. They enter fairly shortly after he does. Yeah. So as Santa enters, several people, including employees of the bank, greeted him. Hey, Santa. Oh, no. Uh, Everyone was super stoked to see him. Pretty quickly, the robbers said the classic, stick him up, everyone. And people at first thought it was a joke. There's this article that was written in March of 1930, so after this happened, and it's an issue in the Startling Detective magazine with details on what actually happened like inside the bank. I don't know if they interviewed, you know, people that were there or present, but it was a very interesting read. Yeah. So all of the robbers had their own responsibilities. So three of the men held the guns while Santa went to grab the money and he got one of the tellers to go open the vault. Meanwhile, during all of this ordeal, Santa was able to find a gun under a drawer in the teller's cage. He also was able to bring out an Idaho potato sack to stuff the cash in. As you do. So I I imagined that it was like under his outfit. Once Mrs. Blassengame realized what was happening, so all this is happening kind of at the same time, she quickly led her daughter through a door into the bookkeeping room and unlocked the side door, which led to the alley. So she unhooked the screen and her and her daughter hurried out. As they were escaping, though, one of the men yelled, stop or I'll shoot. Luckily, they actually ignored them and just ran for it like got out yeah some of the bullets and some of the accounts say that they just missed them as they ran and there was a police station pretty close by so they alerted the chief of police who was ge went by bit for some reason bedford Hmm. and fairly quick after this this is when the gunfire began so because of that reward that i told you about earlier there were citizens like armed citizens outside the bank alongside law enforcement that's a bad idea Yeah, yeah. So there was some reports that say Hill shot his gun into the ceiling, but not directly at someone. And this is an important tip to remember for later. The robbers and the outside people began shooting at each other, but Hill was shooting into the ceiling at first, at least. Yeah. 
The group of robbers then needed to make their escape. So what they did is they grabbed various people around them as human shields so that they could get to the getaway car. Oh, no. Yeah. So they're going through the alley. Several of the hostages were wounded as they walked into the alley because everyone's losing their mind shooting at each other. One being the bank president, Alex Spears, who was one of the initial people to greet Santa when he walked in, which is super sad. Many employees were able to escape. However, the bank robbers got two little girls as hostages to use as the human shields as well as they made their way to the car. You don't have to be this terrible. Like, no, no. This is just, I just imagine how chaotic with like every armed citizen running around with guns, with bank robbers with guns and cops with guns. It's just chaos. Yeah. But the little girls, they were Laverne Comer, who was 12, and Emma May Robertson, who was 10. And again, I just thought you'd appreciate their old timey names. I do. I love them. Mm -hmm. So during this chaos, they fatally wounded two of the officers. One was Chief Bedford and the other was Deputy George Carmichael. Bedford died hours later and Carmichael actually died on January 17th. And then during the trek to the car, Ratliff and Davis were also shot. So they get in their car. They drive off to the edge of town again with their two hostage little girls. The crazy gun mob is pretty much following them during this. Yeah. So they run out of gas. And they're unable to continue in that car. I want to say that also one of their tires was shot out. So like the gas tank and the tire was shot. So they need to find another car to get away in, right? Yeah. So enter our new character, Woody, and his family in the family Oldsmobile. Oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Woody was 14 at the time, and he was driving the car because, you know, 14, sure, you can drive cars. Yeah. Back then, I think it was totally legal. Yeah. So he also had his parents and his grandmother in the car with him. The robbers attempt to take Woody's precious Oldsmobile. But Woody's like, "Mm -mm, I have other plans. No, no. Yeah. So he agrees to give him the car, but he pocketed the keys. (laughs) Remember, it's chaos. Everything's chaotic, right? So the robbers are just running back and forth between the cars because they're moving their stuff over. And also they're trying to avoid getting shot, right? Because this mob is like catching up. Yeah. As they're moving over their stuff, Hill also is wounded. When you're talking about a $5,000 reward for every shot, I mean, there also, we're talking $5,000 in the 20s. Like, yeah, yeah. That's a lot of money. (laughs) It's just chaos. So the other two had already gotten wounded. Yeah. Now Hill's wounded too. Once all their stuff's moved, they quickly realize they can't start the car. (laughs) Idiots. By this time, Woody already ran away. So Woody's gone with the keys. They can't start the car. So they immediately move all their stuff back into the broken ass car. Hostages and all. As you do. As you do. Because they can't start it. Yeah. So all I keep thinking of, and this is so stupid because I know, you know, people are dying. People are getting shot. It's sad. But all I kept doing is imagining these little girls looking at them and giving them the face that that little blonde girl meme is. Where she's in that car seat, the one with like the the two teeth. The stank face, where she's like, mm. yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So as they're like moving back and forth. Yeah. So they're giving them that face in my head. So as all of this is happening, Davis, who was shot in the initial shootout, was unconscious in Woody's car. I mean, fair. Yeah. So they did what any other bank robbing BFFs would do. They left his ass. <laughs> the idiots later realized, oh my gosh, we left the money with Davis. <laughs> They're so bad at this. It's so 
terrible. I love it. I love it. Davis later dies in the hospital after Woody comes back and finds him. So Woody's like, I'm going to come back for my car. Goes back. Davis is in the car. He finds the money. Woody finds the money. And it's about $12,200 in cash and about $150,000 in securities. Woody returns the money to the bank, takes Davis to the hospital or back to town. Just He's such a good little 14-year-old. <laughs> so they drove off in there, remember? broken car. They end up abandoning the car. One, because it's terrible, right? Yeah, you can't fair. really drive. And two, they get to an area where there's like a lot of brush and the car just can't make it. They also leave the Santa suit there and they do leave the two little girls so that they can continue on foot. Luckily, they left the girls. The girls were fine. They basically told them to lie down, cover their face. During the ordeal, though, one of the girls actually recognized Ratliff who was playing Santa because he was telling Hill about his injured chin. And it sounds like he like moved the beard over or like she could see who it was. And she actually recognized him. <laughs> Fool. That came up in trial later. So the next morning they stole another car and then they later crashed it near Putnam. They ended up commandeering another car and then they let this guy drive them around for 24 hours and then they eventually gave it back to him and then stole another one. And there's a pretty big story too in that where it was like a farmer's family car and they like lied and was able to like get him to drive. It's very strange and surprising that they let him go. I'm just confused on that. Yeah. 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 It, it's a whole thing. Yeah. I could probably talk about the story for hours because it's just there's so much happening. So I tried to condense it the best I could. I mean, that's fair. There is a lot happening, but I am intrigued. <laughs> yes. So it keeps going. So while all of this is happening, they're evading search parties. They had no stolen money, so all of this was pretty much for nothing. <laughs> Besides the officers, six townspeople were also shot and wounded during the shootout. However, no one knows who actually shot the people. Was it other townspeople? Was it the robbers? It was just so much chaos. No one actually knows. I love it so much. And it's estimated that there were about 200 bullet holes just at the bank. That is many a gunshot. Yes, yes. So the robbers were not doing well at this time. So Ratliff and Hill had, remember, they got shot, they were wounded, and the three of them hadn't had any food in a while. And then also, it was pretty cold outside. It was December. This is the most tight B bank robbery I've ever heard. It's insane. So they were eventually ambushed by Sheriff Foster. And there was another shootout when they were trying to escape. Cy Bradford, a Texas Ranger, was rumored to have hit all three men during the shootout. Ratliff, the one that was Santa, fell to the ground and was caught during this. The other two, even though they were wounded, they managed to escape into the woods. They were then taken into custody, though, later without another fight. So they were caught again later. Okay. So now there are trials, and this is also just very strange. So Hill pleaded guilty to armed robbery and was sentenced to 99 years in prison. During his trial, it came up that he had been firing into the ceiling, and I believe he said something like, I didn't fire until they started firing at me during that like alleyway run around. Okay, still though. Yeah, yeah. So he managed to escape three times and was caught every time. Once he finally calmed down, Stopped escaping. He was paroled in the 1940s. 
He changed his name and became a productive citizen. Now, this is like my favorite part of it, and I kind of wanted to leave it to last, but it's just kind of a fun thing to think about. In the Albaline Reporter that was dated December 18th, 1977, there's a newspaper article, and it talks about how Woody and Hill became friends. Oh, yeah. So Woody said that Hill, now under his new name, would visit him often and that they planned to meet up for the 50th anniversary of the event, but not at a bank. (laughs) That's fair. He said in a statement after his capture, so Hill did, that Woody, more than anyone else, quote, prevented our successful escape with the money we had. What a fool. So Woody and him hung out. You know, Woody, luckily, he was able to run away. And in some of the accounts, he talked about how there was bullets flying and all of that. But him and his family were actually okay. Yeah. Like, what a weird friendship. How how does that even happen? It's like one of those, like, unlikely animal friendships where it's like an otter and a snake just, like, chilling on a riverbank watching a sunset. That's them. Yeah. Otter and snake. Yeah, that that's what they had. Yeah. Yeah, that is what they had. <laughs> So Helms was identified as the one that killed the officers, and he was given the death sentence. He unsuccessfully tried to take the insanity plea, and he ended up being executed on September 6, 1929, by the electric chair. Woof. Sounds rough, yeah. So Ratliff's, the one that was Santa, his was a little more complicated. So first, he was convicted of armed robbery on January 27th, 1928, and he was sentenced to 99 years. Then in March, he was sentenced to execution due to his rule in the officer's deaths, even though no one could testify that he had a gun while in the bank. But there are accounts that, yeah, he had taken that one. So kind of up in the air. He appealed it. It failed. So then he also attempted the insanity plea. So he began acting insane the day that Helms was executed, and the jailers were pretty convinced. Wow. His mother filed for a lunacy hearing in Huntsville, but the citizens in Eastland County were pissed off because he wasn't dead yet and that he was even trying the insanity plea. Yeah. So then a judge issued a bench warrant for the armed robbery and for stealing Woody's car, and he was extradited to Eastland County Jail. So he continued to act crazy, right? And he convinced his two new jailers, who was Pat Kilburn and Tom Jones, that he was insane. They literally had to feed him, bathe him, and help him go to the bathroom. Oh, wow. Fast forward a little bit. On November 18th, he tried to escape, and he actually mortally wounded Tom Jones during the attempt. He was able to get a hold of a gun, and then he shot Tom. Luckily, Kilburn was there, and he was able to, like, stop him with the help of his daughter. So his daughter Mm -hmm. was in, like, the adjoining living quarters to the jail, and she was able to grab a gun and help. Have you ever been inside like an old style prison where like there are living quarters near it? Is that not wild? Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, there's a lot here, as you said, the the wild west, <laughs> as you put it, where I live. And yeah, we there there's a few of them still standing and we went ghost hunting at one. Ooh. Yeah. So after this, a crowd gathered, right? They were mad that Tom Jones was injured, but then they were told that he would recover and they all dispersed, right? That he was just very, very well liked. But the next morning they found out, no, he wasn't going to recover. He's not going to make it. So the crowd came back. By the end of the day, there were around a thousand people gathered and they were demanding Ratliff. Wow. Kilborn refused and he was kind of like, let justice take its course. Like, No, 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 you can't have him. But then the group overpowered him and they took Ratliff, stripped him naked and dragged him behind a theater. 
they tied him up right it's horrible so they tied him up and they went towards a power pole oddly enough the theater at that time was producing a play that was called the noose Uh oh they attempted then to hang him but the knot came loose and he fell they tried again and it was successful this time so he died around 9 55 p.m on november 19th his last words were boys forgive me oh wow Jones also ended up dying, and his last words made me so sad. He said to his son, be a good boy. He ultimately was the last victim of the Santa Claus bank robbery. The next day, thousands of people flocked to see Ratliff's body on display. It was in a window of a furniture store for some reason, and then it was later moved to the morgue. That's very peculiar. It's very weird. So this whole ordeal became like a a big local folklore and like everyone in town was like, yeah, I was there during the bank robbery or, oh, my sister or my cousin or, you know, someone I know was there at the robbery. Yeah. Everyone talked about it. Everyone knew about it. Everyone had stories. The first national bank is still there, but it's in a new building. They actually display paintings of the robbery. And they have a collection of newspaper clippings and pictures and all kinds of stuff there. They also have a historical marker on the bank, which I found very weird. And it says, scene of daring Santa Claus robbery, December 23rd, 1927. During Christmas festivities, costume Santa and three fellow bandits looted bank of 12,200 cash, 150,000 in securities. They escaped through gun battle with two little girls as hostages. A three-day manhunt followed. The children and money were recovered. The robbers captured. Six persons were killed, eight injured. Later, a mob lynched Santa when he broke out of jail. They display that. Imagine like a like an eight-year-old that just learned to read and they're like, Santa, what's lynching mean? What do they do to Santa? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, but it's kind of weird to hang up, right? Yeah. No, for sure. What an interesting little plaque to have. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll put a picture of that up on our social media as well. And then I did have to look because you did it for Dyatlov. And then I was like, huh, what's that much in cash mean in today's world? Yeah. Thank you. So $12,200 cash in 1927 is worth about $182,570.90 today. Woof. So it was a lot of money that he had in his Idaho potato sack. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy tale. That is a crazy tale. There's ups. There's down. There's crime aplenty. There's everything. There's everything. There's gunshots. There's (laughs) Woody in his Oldsmobile. But you know what there's not? children in a car trunk i'm so excited and that's what we're gonna finish our christmas true crime episode with so in lancaster south carolina in 2012 william trey benton was driving a car with a stolen license plate okay police saw him he was driving down the road but he was driving along where the space like where the parking spaces were not in the road which seems like a thing that's kind of easy to do if you don't know that's like where parking spaces are because in cities the road and the parking spaces are the same unless there's car parked there you know what i mean but so he's driving along that yeah and police are like hmm suspicious but then they run his plates and they're like they don't match the car you're driving So they pull him over and he explains that the car belongs to his grandfather. Interesting. Which doesn't really explain the plates. And so police confirm that the plates were stolen and he's placed under arrest. So as they're arresting him, the trunk to the car pops open and four children pop out, the youngest of which was 11. And at least two of them were Benton's. Now, don't worry, because per officials, quote, they were in the trunk for transport purposes only. (laughs) 
Right. And I laughed because I already knew that. I'm not a monster. I promise. So they had been at the Lancaster Christmas Parade. And what Benton said was that when they had gotten there, like there was enough people to fit in the car. But when they were leaving, like I think some of the kids friends were with them and there wasn't enough room in the car. So his son, who was 14, offered to ride in the trunk. And it was like a five minute drive home. So it wasn't like it didn't feel like that big of a deal. Like they're right by their house. He's just like, I'll just be in the trunk for a minute. Like he probably thought it would be funny. And so when he got pulled over (laughs) for whatever reason, all of the kids decided to crawl out of their seats in the car and into the trunk. (laughs) (laughs) Assholes, right? They're like, hey, officers. (laughs) Yeah, like, hey, it looks like he's in trouble. Let's make it worse. So then also Benton alleges that someone had switched his plates in the car as retaliation. That seems weird. Seems weird. I mean, not implausible, but weird. But he was charged with possession of stolen property, operating an uninsured motor vehicle, driving under a suspended license, possession of stolen property for the license plates, and child endangerment. But nobody was hurt. It was just... He, he like, Benton describes it as, like, a giant misunderstanding. <laughs> How horrible. <laughs> Little kids are assholes. <laughs> they can be, for sure. But also, like, I'm sorry, you're the adult. You need to let the kids know they can't sit in the trunk. Yeah. Also, don't acquire more people when you get someplace than can come home with you. Right. You got to you gotta say no, I say, as a parent to no one but animals. <laughs> you mean you wouldn't put your cat in the trunk? I have a crossover, so there is no trunk. Before we end this, so I do need to tell you the quickest story about my parents and cars. Because it is kind of funny. So growing up, my dad had a comic book store, which meant he also went to comic book conventions and sold stuff. Mm -hmm. So he would have like tons and tons of comic book boxes. And this was the 90s when like, I don't know, were people making seatbelts be a thing? Were my parents that concerned? No. So it would be like no seats in the back of my dad's van, tons of boxes. And in the middle, my brother and I. You were surrounded by the boxes. They would protect you. Yeah, we were supported by comic books. Do you have any questionable driving stories from your youth? I don't think that like that I can remember that are like interesting. I mean, we'd sit in the back of like a pickup truck, but you know, it's the Wild West. So who cares? (laughs) I get very angry, though, when I see people with their dogs in the back of trucks. (laughs) No, that's fair. The only time Moo has ever been in the back of the truck, there was two people with her and we were cuddling and holding her and she was seated the entire time. She was not by herself. And we drove two miles and she loved it. Just like this. It's fine. Sit in the trunk. Just five minutes. It's fine. Everything's fine. She wasn't by herself. She like stuck her little face up in the air and was like, I'm going to the D-O-G-P-A-R-K. I spelled it just in case anybody was with their dogs. Yes. So they didn't get riled up. I spell a lot of dog words here. I get it. I hope dogs listen to this. I do. Yeah. Well, have a great weekend. Yeah, have a great weekend. (laughs) Hopefully your holiday planning is going well and there's no scary Santas anywhere. Yeah. See you next week. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, drewcreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at True Creeps Pod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash True Creeps Pod, and on Twitter at True Creeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 